joy to hear God's people sing. Um, it is encouraging to hear as the, the instruments go down and God's people's voices he- fill the room. And I pray and trust that as we now open up God's Word in Acts chapter 20, that we'll continue to worship the Lord together. And as you turn there, I want to draw our kids' attention to their kid bulletin this week. If you're new with us, we have kid bulletins. This is so that kids can follow along in the sermon a little bit easier. They have um, interactive things for them to work through and keep them engaged in the service. And uh, in the green box, kids, you'll see there's five key lessons or words that you need to know about for this sermon, okay? And I'm going to give them to you. So mom and dad, you might need to help them because I need to keep going and I can't take time to spell each word out, okay? So the first word is character. Be looking for the word character. How many times do you hear me say that? Boldness is the next one. Faithfulness. Awareness. And selflessness. Alright kids? Character, boldness, faithfulness, awareness. And selflessness. I think that's the last one, sorry. Hopefully you've made it to Acts chapter 20 and As you're turning there, I want to draw our attention to actually Ezekiel 34, where Pastor Mike read for us at the pastoral prayer time. And as you recall, as we heard that passage, the Lord is rebuking the shepherds of Israel. He's calling them to account. He's rebuking them for their lack of care in leading the sheep of Israel and leading them to follow the Lord. These so-called shepherds, the Lord says, have fed themselves. They have fattened themselves with the, the choice meats, but they have left the sheep to starve. They have abandoned the sheep. They have lost the sheep, and the sheep have been scattered. And the wolves and the wild beasts have come and gobbled them up. The Lord says that as a result, the sheep are left to themselves. They are sheep. They are, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And so the Lord, un, 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 in un, excuse me, in very clear terms, let's just put it that way, says this, I am against the shepherds. I'm against, you could put, the pastors of Israel because of their carelessness. And the Lord says, I will not leave my sheep to themselves. I will do something about it. He says, in fact, I will become their shepherd. And one day there will be the, uh, one shepherd and, and one flock, and my servant David will rule over them. And no doubt Ezekiel is looking forward to the day in which the Messiah will come, the King of David, whom we know as Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus is speaking about in that familiar passage to most of us if we've been brought up in the church, John 10, where Jesus says, I am the good what? Shepherd. And there will be one flock, and there will be one shepherd. And keeping this mind then that God is going to be and is our shepherd, this looks like for us now that God has provided under shepherds, under the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why at the end of John, 
In John 21, Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says to him three times, giving him a charge, and he says, feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me more than these, Peter? Feed my sheep. Well, it took Peter some time to fully understand Jesus' command to, to make this his own. But by the time he writes 1 Peter, he writes to a group of churches in Asia Minor, and he exhorts the pastors, and he says this to them, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then he says this, and when the chief shepherd appears, who's that? That's the Lord, that's Jesus. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the charge given to pastors, that they should feed the sheep. This is what the Lord said to those false shepherds of Israel's: should not the shepherds feed the sheep? It's not the other way around, that the, the shepherds feed on the sheep, that the shepherds are fed and well taken care of and the sheep are abandoned, but no, should not the shepherds, should not the pastors feed God's flock, and that is you. That is the church. Now we could go to many places in Scripture. We could, we could go to Paul's letter to 1 Timothy. We could go and expound upon 1 Peter chapter 5, and we could see uh, the Lord's exhortations to pastors and how they are to care and what their responsibility is to the flock. But this morning, this is what's on the menu. The Lord wants to feed you Acts chapter 20. And as we come to this passage, we're going to turn and we're going to learn what does it mean for pastors? What does it mean for myself, for, for Jamin, for, for Mike, and, and Lord willing on September 11th that we'll affirm Jim McAllister and Nathan Hunter to be part of the elders, the shepherds of Oak Park. What does it mean for them to feed you? Now you might be saying, Chase, I've got news for you, but most of us aren't pastors. What does this have to do with us? Well, let me give you just quick two reasons to stay engaged. Number one, you need to hold your pastors to this standard. You need to hold us accountable. You need to demand, give me food and give me something good. Give me something that will sustain me, and grow me. But number two, when our mission is complete, when I'm laid down in the grave... And you need to call new pastors to fulfill this charge. You better call men who are true shepherds, who will feed you with solid meat of the word. Furthermore, I think our Christian culture has diluted the role of the pastor. We have a skewed vision of it, and that's not due to you all. That's due to pastors skewing that vision. Many pastors have abandoned their true calling. They, pastors have now turned to being stand-up comics, talk show hosts, motivational speakers, their celebrities, their CEOs, and, and as a result, that is how they're 
so-called pastoring, the churches begin to expect, well, then the pastor's going to be a CEO. And he better be funny. One time I was interviewing for a church, not since I've been here, and, uh, and I remember the man who was on the search committee he says, oh, Chase, we really love your sermons, but you know, the guy who's, who's in right now, he is so funny. You're, and what are you saying? You're not so funny. I said, sorry. And I knew right there, that's what you want. You want the funny guy. But I can tell you at your deathbed, or when you're in a trial, you don't want the stand-up comic. You want the man who's going to say, thus says the Lord. Pastor has become a profession rather than a calling. And as a result, many pastors have become lovers of money. They're entitled, they're arrogant, pursuing their own dreams and aspirations at the, at the sake of the flock. Rather than mimicking the good shepherd who lays down his life for the flock. Ian e. Bounds, great preacher, said the preacher is not a professional man. His ministry is not a profession. It's a divine institution, a divine devotion. In other words, the pastor by profession feeds himself like those false teachers of Israel. However, as we come to Acts chapter 20, Paul is presented as a faithful under-shepherd, admonishing the churches so that they may continue to faithfully minister in the name of Jesus, being built up in the gospel of grace, which is able to save them. If you look with me in our passage, really this is a long passage, but we're only going to focus on verses 17 through 38. But to get us up to speed, the first six verses, Luke quickly details that Paul is on a farewell tour. As we have been detailing through Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, he's been going from city to city um, all over Asia Minor and Syria and, and, and all these places that we have seen, and he has been preaching the gospel in synagogue and getting kicked out and preaching to Gentiles, and, and believers are gathering, a church is planted, and Paul moves on to the next city. Luke shows us that now Paul is revisiting these churches, exhorting them, encouraging them. He's actually headed out to Rome, as we're going to see here in the coming weeks. Paul is on a mission to get to the center of, of the world at this time, to get the gospel there, so that the gospel may spread to the ends of the earth. And so, Paul's on this farewell tour because this will be the last time many of these churches will ever see his face. Just imagine that. What would you say to your children if it was the last time you ever saw them? If you knew, hey, this is the last time I will see you, or your closest friends, you're not going to beat around the bush. You're going to get to the heart of the matter of what is most important. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this text. And in, in several places, you see in verse 1, what is Paul doing after he sends for the disciples? He encourages them and said farewell. Verse 2, when he had gone through the regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So this is what he's doing. He's going to these churches. He is exhorting them. He's admonishing them. He's encouraging them. He's comforting them. 
Now as we jump down to verse 7, Paul has arrived in Troas and he's going to be there for seven days ministering to this church. And it's on the first day of the week, verse 7. And they're gathered together to, to break bread. This is the Lord's Supper. It's kind of like a community group. They're, they're gathered together. They're going to have a meal. They're going to take the Lord's Supper. Paul's going to depart on the next day. And look, he prolongs his speech until midnight. And you're like, whoa, that's forever. Yeah, it was a long time. And then so long that verse 9 says, A young man named Eutychus was sitting in the window, and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul still talked longer. I go about 40 to 45 minutes. Paul's going, let's just say it's dark outside. It's 8. It's now midnight. It's been four hours, and he's going strong. And what happens? This boy falls out from the third story, and he's taken up dead. Paul stops his lessons. Hold on, it's okay. He goes downstairs in a very weird fashion like Elijah and Elisha. He, he bends over the body and he speaks to the boy and he raises him from the dead. He goes, don't be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gotten up, had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a while longer until daybreak. So the sermon kept going until the sun came up. But notice what happens at the end. This is the heart of it. They took the boy away alive and were not a little what? Comforted. This is the role of the pastor to shepherd, encourage, and comfort the sheep. So what did he say? How was he encouraging this body of people? Who was he talking to? We don't know how all these conversations went, but Luke in verse 17 and following gives us an even deeper picture of what Paul was doing on these encouraging farewell tours. Paul arrives in the town of Miletus. This is about 30 miles from Ephesus. And as you can see in verse 16, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so they might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was trying to get to Jerusalem. He's got an offering he's trying to bring to the saints. He wants to do it before Pentecost. It might also have been, we, we saw all the trouble that Paul endured in Ephesus. Hey, maybe he's like, hey, I don't need to go there. But rather, he says, verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. I can't come to the whole church, so I'm going to speak to the pastors. Hey, let's send them to me. But I want you to notice here what the church has elders. A multiplicity of pastors. And he calls them to them. And what we're going to see is that Paul begins to exhort them to carry on the work. How does he do this? We really get to the heart of the passage in verse 28. When he says to these pastors, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word where we get a, a bishop or episcopal. So already he's, he's called them elders and now he's called them bishops. And he says, to care for the church of God. That word to care is the word pastor. These elders, these overseers, they pastor the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
See, what Paul is going to do here is he exhorts them to watch their life and their doctrine. And he first begins with his own life. He says, I want you to consider me. You see it in verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. And so Paul is going to put himself forward as a model example of what these pastors are to be and what they are to do. In other words, pastors are to watch their life and doctrine for the sake of the sheep. And it is in this way that pastors can faithfully serve the Lord, caring for the church which God purchased with the precious blood of Christ. I want you to know that that is my charge, that is Jamin's charge, that is Mike, and that will soon be Jim and Nathan's charge. That you are the precious bride of Christ that was purchased with Christ's blood. You don't need a CEO. You need a shepherd. You don't need a talk show host. You don't need a motivational speaker. You need someone who will lay down your, his life for you. Oh, there might be the greatest leaders in the world, but if they're not shepherds, you're, you're not going to be cared for. You might be able to lead a Fortune 500 business, but you might not be able to lead the church of God. Paul doesn't give them a, you know, a list of top leadership qualities that would have been acceptable of the time. No, he says it's a matter of your life and your doctrine. So let's see what he has to say here. And as we look at this and we keep this exhortation in mind, I want to draw to your attention six essential qualities of a pastor who truly feeds the people of God. This is what you need. This is what we need. This is what the Lord calls us to. And the first essential characteristic in kids, if you're keeping notes, is character. Character. You need pastors with character. And this is exactly what Paul says in verses 18 through 19. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. I was an open book to you. From the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul appeals to his character. He says, you know the type of man that I was. And first of all, he says, I serve the Lord with all humility. Paul was a humble man. You know, you don't ever really see that in the leadership books. Be humble. Rather, they say, be sure of yourself. Paul says, I came with humility. Rather, Paul would often present himself, 1 Corinthians 4.1, Romans 1.1, and he would say, I am a slave. I am a doulos of Christ. I'm a servant. I'm a foot washer. I'm a nobody. I am under orders by a general, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ, who washed others' feet. Oh, he was not going to be your most influential people in the world list. But he was a shepherd. Paul identified himself as the chief of sinners. That's the type of men you need who, who recognize their brokenness and their need for the Savior. You're not the ones who have it all figured out. And the ones who, who have the perfect life and, that, and therefore there is nothing wrong with them and they are unattainable, unreachable. No, Paul came in and said, I want you to know that yes, I understand your struggle with sin. 
I understand when it plagues you and it seems to come after you when you aren't even asking for it. I understand that it seats you like a lion going to prey upon you. I know it is a struggle and you think you cannot shake it, but let me know, let you know, I am the chief of sinners. And I have been put forth as an example of Christ's perfect patience. If he can save me, if he can care for me, if he still loves me, I can assure you, our Lord loves you. That's the type of man that he was. A humble man. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul recounts to the Corinthians who were saying, you need to be like all the great leaders of the world. And Paul says, I purposefully didn't do that so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but it would rest in the power of God. He did not entrust people's soul to his own wisdom and abilities, his own skills. He goes on and he says, let people consider us as the stewards of the mysteries of God. Do you know what a steward was? This is 1 Corinthians 4.1. A steward was a household slave. Household slave. He says, I care for a master's belongings. Nothing is mine. And so he did not evaluate his ministry even on worldly standards. I'm just going to quote this because it's so profound and anti our culture. It says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, not successful. And he goes on, he says, But with me, it is a very small thing what you that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. And you might be saying, well, what are you talking about, Paul? And I can totally identify with this. On a Sunday morning, it is, it is, it is amazing. And you, you know, I can have one person say, this was the best sermon you've ever preached, Chase. That was wonderful. That spoke to me. And then I can come around and I'll have another person waiting for me. Hey, what were you trying to say? It's like, boom, you and I, so what am I supposed to do with that? Tally them up. Well, I had 15 positive ones and, and 16 negative. I guess that one didn't go through. Paul even recognizes his own heart. I come after preaching and, and laboring and ministering, and I know my own failures. I look at these notes, and I say, they're pitiful. Lord, this isn't going to save anybody. You're going to have to show up. I'm a nobody. And he says, I don't even judge myself. He goes on, he says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. That's the type of man that is to be a shepherd. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, if we magnify ourselves, we shall become contemptible. 
And if we shall neither magnify our, and we shall neither magnify our, our office nor our Lord. We are servants of Christ, not lords over his heritage. Ministers are for churches, not churches for ministers. You might say, man, you're bringing the heat. Yeah, because I'm preaching to myself. This is what I am to be. This is what Jamin's to be. This is what Mike's to be. Come back to Acts 20. Not only did Paul serve the Lord with all humility, but he did so with tears. And, and the word that I pick up on here is authenticity. This was a genuine man. And genuine isn't always nice and clean. That's the culture of the day. Make everything nice and clean and professional and neat and tidy. So it looks like when anybody comes in, there's no weakness. If I came up here crying, you'd be like, what, what is wrong with this guy? That's not clean. That's not going to draw people in. But Paul appeals to his life and, and he says, you know how I was with you in tears. Furthermore, he, he speaks about, you know how I lived among you the whole time. You could see my life. You saw me walking in the streets. You saw me working with my own hands, building tents and, and leather working. You saw me at the store. You saw me working in the yard. You saw me in the church. My life was not hidden from you. I was among you. I was not above you. He says he served with tears. In other words, people could feel his passion. They knew that this was not a fake man, a polished sermon that has no flaws but has no emotion. It does not come and pierce the heart. A sermon that has not dwelt inside of him that cannot dwell inside of you. And he came and he said, I, I pled with you and I pleaded with you even with tears. He goes on and he says about his character that he also did this through trials. And this highlights perseverance. Pastors are to be those who persevere under trials. And Paul recalls the plots of the Jews where, where people are, are scheming and plotting to take him down, even to kill him. Nevertheless, Paul understood that even with the onslaught of the evil one, he was to remain cool under pressure. Really, it's in the moments of when the pressure's up, when the pastor is squeezed, that his true character shines. It's easy to put on the, the, the face when the things are going well. But when the storms and troubles come, you'll know the character of your pastor because you'll see how he responds. This is what Jesus spoke about in John 10. He speaks of these false shepherds who flee when trouble comes. And he calls them hired hands. He says, who is the hired hand and not a shepherd? The one who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. Uh-oh, I see things are about to go down. I'm jumping ship. And, he's, and Jesus goes on and says, the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Brothers and sisters, Paul here, by extension to all true pastors, they are to be those who are not hired hands. Rather, they emulate their Savior, the Good Shepherd, willingly laying down their lives for the sheep. The man is not only a man of character, but he must also be a man who has something to say. 
must have something to say when he comes up in the pulpit. And, and so here's the next point. The next quality of a, of a pastor who feeds his sheep is boldness. Look in verses 20 through 22. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. What does Paul say? He says, I came to you preaching declaring, teaching, and I did not hold back. I did not shrink back from the task. In actuality, I came with boldness. And what does he say? I came preaching what was for your good. What is that? Later, he's going to speak of it being the whole counsel of God, the will of God. He had opened up the scriptures and he would minister to them to to their souls. He did it for their own good, to feed them, to nurture them. I have kids. We get this. If you had kids and, and you have dinner time, you know what my kids wanted to do last night at dinner? Thanks to grandparents. They wanted to have ice cream smoothies for their drinks before they got their meal. And they looked down and said, is that okay with mom and dad? And mom and dad said, No. It's not okay. Because they'll eat the ice cream and they won't eat the substance. So you might say, why do you preach on certain things? Why do you come at us with these things? Why do you do that? Because I want to give you substance. I want to give you something that feeds your soul. I want you to be built up. I could give you a smoothie every week. And you would wither away and die. I got some of those. No, we wouldn't. Notice he did these things in all settings, both publicly and privately. He would preach in the synagogue. He was at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. But not only that, he would minister from house to house. And this is what Paul is saying. Yes, I came with boldness, and you saw the boldness up in public, and you saw it in private. These men, shepherds who truly feed the sheep, they give the same meal at every every occasion. Yes, it might be diced up a little bit differently, packaged, but it's the same meal. They're the same message, the same people. They're not double-tongued. You're not going to hear me or Jamin or any one of your pastors say something publicly here and then privately say, ah, don't worry about that. What was this? What was this that he preached? Well, he says in verse 21, testifying to both Jews and Greeks, meaning the message didn't change to the people I talked to either. So the setting, all settings I preached, all places and all people. I preached the same message. Well, what did you preach? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here, this is an overarching canopy, an umbrella that encompasses everything. This covers every facet of teaching the Bible. You need to repent of thinking of things this way and start trusting Jesus and living this way. And so you don't need me to give you sermons based on the latest hot sitcom. And I went last night and just started to see what kind of sermon series are out there. You don't need five tips for a great love life today. Three ways to be fulfilled at your work. 
10 ways to deal with your anger or how to be a, get this, confident person. You need to be a humble person. Paul says our confidence is not in ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Or breaking bad relationship patterns. I mean, all those things, I guess, in some level, they're they're okay. You need me to tell you where you must repent of doing life your way and how to live a life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will that impact? It will impact how you live in your relationships. It will impact how you parent, how you should respond to your parents as children, as a student, how you should engage as a citizen, how to be a professional. In every facet of life, it can be summed up, repent from doing it man's way and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and do it his way. That's what every message could be summed up in that phrase. And so no matter if Paul was public, private, whether he was talking to Jews or he was talking to pagans, it was repent and believe. And so for some of you, what's, what's the point? where's that today in this message? You might think pastors are X, Y, Z, and I'm telling you, repent of that and believe what you're seeing here. And exhort me to be that. Preferably kindly, I would ask. Third characteristic of quality is faithfulness. He goes on, verse 22, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What does faithfulness look like? A pastor who is marked by faithfulness understands, number one, he's under the constraint of the Spirit. That word that he speaks of, I'm under constraint, is the word bound, like chains, a shackle. That's the kind of picture he has. I'm a slave. I'm a prisoner of Christ. And his spirit owns me. So the things I do, the things that I'm going, the way that I minister is not because, oh, I think this is what needs to be done. It's because I'm under constraint. And what does he say? And I'm not going to know what the results are going to be. You see that? I'm going to Jerusalem, I know that much, not knowing what will happen to me there, except bad things. Again, I can identify with this. Every day I preach, I'll I'll preach after today. You know what? I won't see, oh, you know what? Between um, 10.30 and 12 o'clock, I saw the change. It's like, watching your hair grow. You, you don't see it in the moment. I get more satis- immediate satisfaction after mowing my lawn when I do it, Cameron. Um, he's a beloved brother who, who surprises me often. I can see the product, do the work, and at the end, look at it with a cup of tea and say, job well done. I can never do that with this ministry. I can preach and and 
all intents and purposes, I might have just stirred the pot. I won't necessarily see the results till later. It might not be until the day of the Lord that I see the results. And so Paul says, I'm under constraint. This job is vastly different. That's why it's not a profession. There's not, oh, do this and here's the result and you'll see it. It's subjective. At the end of the day, the objective is not made known until the last day. How am I doing? Time will tell. Rather, I'm to be faithful. Everything that Paul here is talking about is being faithful. So how do you do do that? How do you minister knowing that what's going to come is just trouble? Well, verse 24, you, you don't account your life as of any value. What are you talking about? Certainly you value yourself. Yes, in some sense, but not above the mission. Not above the commission. Not above the task. Not above the charge. I'm often asked this, both within the church and outside the church. Oh, do you think you can be satisfied at Oak Park to stay a while? Do you think you'll be fulfilled? And I'm like, when did I have a choice? I'm not saying I am not have joy in you, but since when was the litmus test, oh, as long as you're satisfied, that's when you, you stay. Or you're fulfilled. You know, when you get your degree across the seminary, you know, is that the time you're going to bounce? No. Why would I do that? Why would I invest, and tell me, Sarah, the pain. I'm on round three at the seminary. The pain. The pain. I do it for you. I said, whatever, Chase. No, seriously. You know what I told them in my membership interview or my PhD interview? Why do you want to do this? I said, so I can dig the well deep to serve my people. That's why. So why would I dig the well deep just to bounce? No, my task is to fulfill the commission. And the way I see it, to do this task is going to take my whole life. It's going to take faithfulness. Paul says in verses 26 through 27, he alludes back to that Ezekiel passage when he says, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. I was innocent of the blood of all. Ezekiel 33, the Lord says to Ezekiel, you're to be a watchman. And you're to warn the people of God when trouble is coming, when judgment is coming. And if you do not warn them, their blood will be on your hands. But if you warn them and they do not listen, you are free. You are innocent of the blood of them all. Paul said, I was faithful. I preached. I told, I ministered in every setting and every occasion amongst all people. This is what faithfulness looks like. Fourth quality is urgency. This is where he gets to that in verse 28. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to pastor, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Watch your life and your doctrine. So you know how I best care for you? I labor in the Word. I watch my life. I pursue holiness. I pursue godliness. Because unholy pastors will make unholy people. 
And for some reason, I don't get it, but my generations of pastors have, have, have bought into this manner that holiness is an option. That it's better to be cool, to be liked, to be accepted, than to pursue holiness. But this is exactly what Paul's talking to. He says to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on your t- teaching, for in doing this, you will both save yourself and your hearers. Now let me just kind of make the connection here. It's not a direct connection, but there's an implication. Church family, there is a close relationship to your sanctification and mine and your pastors. In a very real sense, my pursuit of godliness has a direct impact on your growth. That's why you need me to be fed and cared for and pursuing godliness so that I may lead you to do the same. People like priests, that is why the Lord rebukes those shepherds of Israel's, you have fed yourself and my people have suffered. So why the urgency? Because there's threats, verse 29 and 30. He says, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They will show no mercy. Now, what is he talking about? I was talking to my kids. It's one of my routines on Saturday night. If I can condense my sermon that they can understand it, I think I can preach to you. And you know, in their mind, they're thinking wolves running in the church. Paul defines what he's talking about here. Verse 30, and among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted, perverted things to draw away the disciples after them. What's the threat? False teaching is the threat. False teaching from outside and false teaching from within. This looks like perverse doctrine. This, in fact, happens to this church, and Paul has to send Timothy there to to establish a new board of elders because two of them, um, Hymenaeus and Alexander, are starting to teach that the resurrection has already happened, and Paul says, and they have shipwrecked the faith of many. Perverse doctrine, and sometimes shows up in legalism. You must do X, Y, and Z to be accepted before God. But on the other side, licentiousness. You can live however you want. God's paid for it all. Divisive people are also a threat to the church. Those who gather people and begin to, to poke holes at the leadership and, 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 and undermine their, their, their care and their authority and begin to cast doubt among the people, that destroys the church. And then there's just the lure of the world. Paul speaks of one of his companions, Demas, and he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has forsaken me. And I can tell you there is no greater pain when you see those sheep that you have cared for and you have labored and you have sought to heal up the wounds who bite hook, line, and sinker with what the world has. And it leads to further destruction. So what's the solution? 31, be alert. Be alert, pastors. Be on guard. Some of you say, why are you all so uptight? Why do you you gather and why do you keep everything so tight-knit in these meetings? Because we're we're trying to protect the flock. I say, what to protect them from what? From threats outside and the threats from within. And Paul says, 
Remember, for that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone, here it is again, with tears. Paul said, this is important. You're going to hear about it over and over and over again. And what he's doing is saying, pastors, you need to keep up that urgency. You might say, Chase, why do you hit the same, uh, you know, beat the same dead drum every Sunday? Because if I don't, we'll forget. We won't be alert. We're at war, people. That was last Sunday. The forces of evil are against us. This is not the time to say, all right, I'll sit back and have my latte. Although you can do that, you know. Ultimately, pastors, though, are to entrust their people to the Lord, and that's exactly what Paul does. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What does Paul say? I'm leaving. There's only so much I can do as a human being. And I can tell you that is comforting as a pastor. Because we will give our lives for you. But at the end of the day... I can tell you when I go to bed and the way I can sleep is I say, Lord, I give them to you. I must go to sleep. And you're the one who never wearies, who never sleeps. Keep them. Protect them. Use my words as I so much that I preach your words. Use my life. And Lord, please, where I have failed and I have not modeled it, please do not use that against them. Keep them until the very end. Fifth characteristic or quality is selflessness. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Bottom line, pastors are not to be lovers of money. That's the number one mark of a false teacher. Did you know that? Lovers of money. The shepherds of Israel, they fed themselves and left the sheep to starve. Peter calls the false teachers, and he says that their God is their belly. They've forsaken the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. May it never be said of the pastors here that they love money. Take our salaries. Take our livelihood. And we'll still preach. Why? Because Paul says it's more blessed, quoting Jesus, to give than to receive. That is the mindset of the pastor. It's selfless. It is not about us. Ministers are for the church, not the church for the minister. As Spurgeon said. In Oak Park, you have graciously given to your pastors. Many of you have sacrificed to take care of the ministers here, and I want you to know that we do not take that sacrifice lightly. We will work hard for you. We will labor hard for you so that your giving would not be in vain. Then he closes here, verse 36, and this is the last quality, and that is affection. Affection. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him. 
being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. It does not matter what you know or anything about the man if the people do not know that the shepherds care for them. It doesn't matter. We could have the most splendid programs that run without a hitch. But if you got the sense that your pastors don't love you, it would mean nothing. It would mean nothing. And here you can clearly see they loved Paul. A busy man, a faithful man, a man who boldly preached to them, told them what would benefit them, but they knew that he loved them. And they loved him back. And there is a sweet fellowship there that God intends for his church to experience. And that's when a church is thriving. That's when a church is feeding. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I know you've got a young pastor. You've got a lot of young pastors around here. It's a young church. But as Paul exhorted Timothy, he said, let your progress be evident to all. And that's what I do. I want to commend my life to you. I want you to see my progress. Yes, I am I'm going to fail you. I'm a man. The best of men are men at best. But I can assure you that me, along with your other pastors, we love you and we will lay down our lives for you. And, at that, and, and with that, we commend ourselves and you to our Lord to keep us, to protect us, so that we may obtain the inheritance with all those being sanctified. Well, I went over my time. You know that I love you. Let me pray for you, and we'll be dismissed. Father, may we be a people who want to be fed. May I be a man who wants to be fed by the other pastors. And Lord, together I pray that you would care for this flock, care for this church from all the threats of the evil one, and Lord, that you will use this church and continue to use this church in Jeffersonville and southern Indiana and all the other areas that we send the gospel and gospel ministers, Lord. And Lord, that you would do a work, a work that the world can't explain, the world can't put their finger on it and say, aha, I know why they are able to be so successful. But know that the world would scratch their heads and say there's something miraculous going on there. And Lord, my personal prayer is that I would lead this people to be a humble, godly, and holy group. And Lord, that begins with me. And so, Lord, I pray that these things in your name to that end. Amen. Let's stand and we are dismissed.